0: The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by James Corbett, the man, the myth, the legend, Señor uh, Santiago, or Jaime, as we would call you here in Mexico. How is the Great Reset going in Japan? As well as can be expected. In fact, actually,
1: given what is happening in other parts of the world, it's going extremely well here in Japan, which is not something I would have predicted beforehand. But um, before we start, let me just give a a little plug for your podcast podcast. I've been enjoying it quite a bit recently. Um, I appreciate the fact that you're bringing in a lot of different people with from a lot of different perspectives, some of whom I agree with, some of whom I slightly agree with, some of whom I violently disagree with. But I do appreciate that you do get a broad range of opinions on.
0: Yeah, th- th- thanks for that. You know, I was just going to say it's kind of funny that, you know, here, here we are, two, I guess, former English teachers turned podcasters, content creators, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, the geopolitics and empire – can't hold a candle to the prolific work of a Corporate Report, but it, it was—it's funny, you know. I had you actually on my future guest list, and then a friend of mine pointed out that recently you had actually mentioned me in your Kazakhstan episode, which I thought was flattering. And you know, I thought it was a good time now then to shoot you a, a mail. Um, but you've had quite the ride over the past decade plus, putting out a huge library of important work and meeting so many interesting people. I'm just curious, you know, how has the ride been for you? How does it feel? You know, has your work ethic changed much? You know how, how have you changed or stayed the same through all of these years? A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the great reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30 minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, and a monthly members group call, all of which will also be available in Español.
1: Uh, well i guess on the on the personal level or on the work level um i don't think that my work ethic has changed i have just always been particularly self motivated which is a good thing when you're basically doing this for yourself and by yourself <laughs> with yourself <laughs> just talking to a screen most days if you're not self motivated to get out of bed and start doing things um it's probably going to be a problem but luckily that's never been a problem for me so I, in that sense i don't think anything's changed in fact the one thing that has changed is when i started of course i was just doing this as you say, kind of as a hobby. Um, But it was essentially a second full-time job after my full-time job of teaching. But uh, luckily, after four years, I was able to amass enough of an audience and support in order to start doing it full-time. So now I don't have that burden. But now (laughs) I also have a family, which uh, is obviously a demand on my time as a stay-at-home father. So I juggle a lot of balls, but luckily I'm able to do that. However, um, in terms of what I've, the way I've changed uh, in my operation, or the way I think about things, or the way I approach things, I, I think I've been consistent in some of my um, core principles and things. But I have been, I have certainly changed on certain topics and certain ideas. And uh, obviously, I'd like to think that as my research, as I've done more research, I've come to a more nuanced understanding of various things. Um, probably the biggest change that has occurred in the, the demonstrable in the time since I started to now would be my uh conversion from statism to some flavor of anarchism. I think that's a, a pretty big change to, to make um, politically speaking.
0: Yeah speaking of anarchism I was just gonna ask you by the way, you know, I think have you been to Mexico to for Anarchapolco? And I've been you, there twice, yeah. How did you enjoy Mexico? Is it is it some uh, someplace, you know, a lot of people are are fleeing to Mexico. Is it a place you'd recommend
1: I recommend. Actually, I have questions for Corbett on this specifically um, where I think it's called, where should we run to? I think it was number 74, but don't hold me to that. Anyway, you can find it on my site where I address that question because I get that question a lot from people uh, at least a couple of weeks, every single week. Um, You know, I want to move. Where should I? What country should I move to? I cannot and will not answer that question for anyone because it's such a personal question dependent on a thousand different Personal context, sort of things. So, for some people, I'm sure Mexico is a great place to go. For others, I'm sure it is not, and I wouldn't presume to uh, to say either way. For me personally. Uh, I mean, what is the secret stew that made it so that when I got to Japan and was planning to stay here for one year, I've stayed here for 18 years. What is it about Japan that drew me to it? And I felt comfortable. I feel at this point, I feel more at home in Japan than I would in Canada. So why is that? I don't know. That's a million different personal things that go to that. Um, But people always ask me, why did you go to Japan? Like as if it was some sort of big political decision that I made or some sort of calculation or strategic thing. No, I was young, dumb, single, carefree, was just looking for a way to kill a year and make some money. So I'll go teach English in Asia. And it turns out I really liked it in Japan. That's the long and short of it. As it turns out, that was actually, I think, very beneficial for me in a number of ways. One of which is that because I was, uh, not fluent Japanese speaker in Japan at, in early 2000s, my my lifeline, the sort of the thing that I was getting information and news and things from was online. And so I was a very early adopter of podcasts and what have you, because it was just a very easy way for me to stay in touch with what was going on back home in Canada. And as a result of that, I think I was early on the, the wave of uh, things like podcasting and other things, which helped me out in the long run. And also, I think it is easier to do this work that I do from a remove. I talk a lot about Canada and the U.S. and other places, but it's good to have that actual distance so I can sort of see things from afar and uh, get a different perspective on them.
0: Yeah, my story uh, is the same. I I thought I'd go to Mexico just for a year or two. I became a Mexican. I've been here for 10 years. And even Mexicans ask me, why did you come here? And I'm like, I'm still trying to figure out the question, the answer to that (laughs) question. So that's just life, you know. Life happens, and as you say, I agree. When people ask me, like, should I go to Russia or Mexico or Latin America, and I'm like, I often tell them it might be better just to stay put uh, where you are. So, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on what's most pressing you uh, at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of questions I could ask you, and and often I ask my guests, you know, what's on your mind right now. I cover a lot of topics, but. I've kind of gotten tired of the geopolitical war talk, you know, with this US-Russia mm. cycle at the moment. And yeah. I kind of view it as a bit of a diversion from COVID-1984. Uh, you know, um, the great reset and all that it entails is my number one worry at the moment. That includes, you know, the cyber pandemic and, and all of this stuff that you and mm. I and listeners know about. I'm kind of disregarding all of this talk of the restrictions being canceled. Many of the articles that I'm reading, you know, in fact, they say, oh, you know, we're getting rid of the restrictions. But, you know, they still outlined that the COVID passports uh, are here to stay. And here in Mexico, you know, they're already operating. They're already talking about expanding them. Uh, so now they're attempting to install this global social credit system, which when in place will basically turn off my ability to do anything. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating that it will literally starve me and my family uh, to death. Um, that's kind of my worry. That's, that's, that's uh, on my radar. What's, what are some of the things on your radar at the moment?
1: Well, I think my thoughts are very much in line with that. COVID-1984 has as much to do with a virus as Watergate had to do with a hotel, which is to say nothing. It's not about that. And so whatever happens in terms of this pandemic that we're living through right now, uh, it doesn't matter. The infrastructure for the biosecurity state is being laid, has already to some extent been laid, and will not be pried out without well, some major revolutionary times uh, to come. So that's that's definitely forefront in my mind, at least for this particular moment and what we're living through right now. And I have always and will always cite um, one of the, uh, the, the writers and thinkers that helped me to not understand this, but to articulate it was uh, Giorgio Agamben, um, who was the one from whom I got that, that term, biosecurity, and he formulated it very simply, and very precisely, in a very articulate way early on. And I think he definitely saw where this was going from a very early stage. So for people who don't know about Giorgio Agamben, he, he wrote, a, uh, he's an Italian philosopher, he's written about um, states of emergency and how... They are used to override constitutions and other things, um, which basically, I think, shows that the p- political the governance paradigm that we live under is not really what we think it is and can change at a moment's notice, as we have seen. And he's uh, really articulated what this is and where it's going and the fact that this is a new governance paradigm for the planet. Um, for example, when he's uh, he uh, did an interview in May of 2020, so very early on, called uh, Polemos Epidemios, where he said an epidemic, as is suggested by its etymological roots in the Greek term demos, which designates the people as a political body, is first and foremost a political concept. In Homer, Polemos Epidemios is the civil war. What we see today is that the epidemic is becoming the new terrain of politics, the battleground of a global civil war, because a civil war is a war against an internal enemy, one which lives inside of ourselves. And he goes on to say, it is important to understand that biosecurity, both in its efficacy and in its pervasiveness, outdoes every form of governance that we have hitherto known. As we have been able to see in Italy, but not only here, as soon as a threat to health is declared, people unresistingly consent to limitations on their freedom that they would never have accepted in the past. Well, that's a pretty good articulation of what's happened over the past couple of years. And as I say, this this has nothing to do with the particularities of this particular moment. And people who have followed my work for any length of time hopefully know by now, I was talking about medical martial law over a decade ago, because precisely because the legislative institutional f- uh, groundwork for this has been laid over the past couple of decades at the very least. So this particular thing is being used as the moment, okay, let's pull the trigger on this. But the the gun was already loaded and ready to go. And it didn't take a crystal ball to see where this was going. This is the the new governance paradigm for the planet for at least until the next one comes along. We went from the homeland security state of the early 2000s into the biosecurity state without missing a beat. And there are a number of parallels there. And I did a, a piece in uh, in 2020, on September 11th, I released a COVID-9-11, where I specifically drew those parallels between homeland security and biosecurity. And you can look at some very specific examples. I believe it was the Clear Health Pass was something that was started in or 2002, 2003, something like that, as part of this screening process at airports before the, the homeland security state and screening for terrorism and what have you. And that company has effortlessly switched over to, well, now they're going to be providing the health check screening passports that now won't just be at the airports. Now it's moving out into your everyday life. And exactly as you say, it's creating the infrastructure for a state where they can turn your ability to participate in society on or off with a flick of a switch. So I guess what I see coming is in the very near term, yes, all of this vaccine health passport is just the fig leaf for the implementation of the digital ID system, which will then be used and forwarded through social credit scores and the central bank digital currency, which is what I see as the midterm. In the next five years, we are going to start seeing the implementations of CBDCs in various countries, which will be directly controlled by central banks. They will be able to algorithmically control money itself so that if, you, uh, if they want to impose limits, for example, we, want, we need to quarantine this city. So your CBDC wallet will no longer work if you leave the city and we have your GPS because it's on your smartphone. So we know where you are. We know who you're transacting with. We know what you're buying at every moment that you're buying it. We can allow or disallow that transaction. That is the nightmare in the midterm. And then long term, unfortunately, within the next decade, I do see hot war, geopolitical war as a very real possibility.
0: Yeah, I had a similar view. Actually, I had Agamben's book on my wish list. Now I'm going to get it that, that you mentioned it. And I think about a year ago, I think I was one of the first to interview Robin Monotti, the, the architect, and he was mentioning, Italian architect, and he was mentioning uh, Agamben. But I think this some of the, what we're seeing goes back even way further, like a century. I I'd, I interviewed the Jewish historian Edwin Black, which, where he talks about the algorithm ghetto. And on his show just two uh, weeks ago, the topic was how in 1938, The governor of Connecticut, eugenicist, had drawn up plans to actually take people they deemed uh, as undesirables, send them to extermination camps in the Ozarks. We're talking about Connecticut in the United States in 1938. So he lost uh, re-election. So that plan just never came to fruition. But he was influenced by the Nazis, who were in turn influenced earlier by the American eugenicists. So it seems like what they're trying to do now, they've been trying to do this for a century. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's insane. And um as you say, uh, a lot of people say I, I'm, I'm too pessimistic or cynical, but I don't see this going away. Like, we're in it. They're laying the infrastructure. Uh, There's a lot of hopium going around, but I'm just kind of like batting down the hatches and kind of preparing for the worst. It's just, I mean, what are your thoughts going forward?
1: Uh, Yes, I I agree. We should not be taking this lightly. And I just, as we're recording this, I wrote an editorial just the past weekend called uh, Do Not Go Back to Sleep. This is not the end because I see the same sort of rhetoric going around. People celebrating. Yay, they're rolling back the restrictions. Yes. Okay. Let's be happy about the the steps that are being taken in the right direction. But we may be winning certain battles. We are not winning this war, not by not by a long shot, not yet. So there's a lot more work to be done on that note that you mentioned about the sort of the historical context for this and stepping back and looking at the bigger, bigger picture of where this is coming from and the ideology behind it. I think that's extremely important to be able to understand that this is not just the happenstance, incompetent boobs bumbling their way through a response to this thing that came up. Oh, what are we going to do? No, this is part and parcel of a, a plan that is in line with an ideology that has been pervasive at the very least, demonstrably for over a century now, and I tied—I tried to tie that history together in my "How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World" documentary, where I, essentially what I see is. The early iteration of this philosophy, ideology, guiding principles of the oligarchs uh, it, it was framed around the concept of eugenics, the pseudoscience of eugenics it, that developed in the late 19th century in England, but quickly spread to the United States and then to Germany, etc. Um, but, of course, after World War II and all of that, well, it's we can't really... Claim to be eugenicists anymore. It's kind of got a dark, we don't want to have those connotations. So we have to take it underground. And the American Eugenics Societies and others explicitly said we need to start crypto eugenics. You had Julian Huxley, the founder of UNESCO, writing in the founding document of UNESCO, we need to make eugenics policies thinkable again. All of this. Well, how do we do that? Well, you have. People like Julian Huxley and others who come together in organizations like the World Wildlife Federation. What a wonderful thing! Yay! You know, all these all these very rich, very powerful people coming together in conservator conservatorship kind of organizations, World Wildlife Federation. These sorts of things that are just about protecting nature, and then we get the next iteration of. The uh, eugenics ideas, which was formulated, uh, reformulated as population control to save the planet, and population control in every sense—not just in terms of numbers and contro- controlling fertility and sterility and what have you—but also controlling the population and what they can do and what they're allowed to do, and that will that that starts to go into the the, the burgeoning environmental movement, which becomes a way of restricting. Um, uh, people's ability to access various parts of nature and eventually, of course, who can own and who and what will we do with this nature. And that's culminating, as I was reporting late last year in this global financial alliance for net zero, which came about at the COP26 in Scotland, where they're talking about, uh, oh, you know, we're going to we're going to form these new natural asset classes, which will then be traded by you know, the the trustworthy people of Blackstone and other such investment uh, companies. And and we're going to have these billionaires stewarding over the world's natural resources in the name of saving Mother Earth, of course. Um, And where I see this going long term is into the next iteration of the same idea, the fundamental idea of eugenics, which for people who don't know, look it up. But essentially the idea that there are certain people who are genetically fit to rule over others, they are genetically superior and their genes deserve to be propagated into the future. The genes of the the poor and the criminals and uh, the mentally defective, they need to be removed from the gene pool. Um, That's essentially what we're talking about. It's just a justification for ruling class ideology. But the long term, then the next stage of that is going to be transhumanism. And that sounds absolutely crazy to the average person, as it should. But don't talk to me or to the average person. Talk to Klaus Schwab and you know the World Economic Forum, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, talking about the merging of our uh, digital, biological, and physical identities, the the uh, the brain chips, and the, all these crazy ideas that. Again, it's not James Corbett talking about it. It's Klaus Schwab and his cronies talking about these ideas that are coming that will be tied into the central bank digital currencies and the digital IDs and the social credit scores and the vaccine passports, which for some reason they're calling green passes in country after country. Hmm, I wonder if there's some carbon credits that are coming in the future. You'll have a carbon allowance that you'll be allowed to spend each month, which ties into technocracy, which is an entire other Idea which uh, ties very nicely into the eugenics story that I'm painting here, where literally it was a plan to structure the economy not around dollars and cents or pesos or yen, but around jewels of energy. And you will be allowed a you will be allotted a credit of energy each month by the techni the techno rulers of the technate who rule over you and they will allow you to spend a certain amount of energy each month. So products and services that you buy will be priced in units of energy. And this will all be balanced by the scientists and engineers who know best for you. Um, Again, all of this fits together. And to anyone who doesn't understand or doesn't know any part of what I just talked about, that just sounds like I just verbally diarrheaed all over the place for the last couple of minutes. But when you start to know all of the pieces of that puzzle and how they fit together, it is absolutely breathtaking. And uh, that is the reason why people like yourself know that whatever little
0: rollbacks we're getting on this or that mandate here and there is not the end of this battle. I just saw recently someone I interviewed some months ago the Australian senator Malcolm Roberts was he's going all out and he's just been weekly now talking about this Australian digital identity bill and basically using the same language as you that he's saying that they want to put our all aspects of our lives to make it a subscription service to them like as you laid out every single aspect of of our life um and just to, I don't know how important this qu- this is like, how would you qualify this system? For me, it's not that important. I mean, it's ultimately total. It's a totalitarian system that's going to have total control, you know, the financial aspect money and power. But, you know, we hear you've mentioned biosecurity, states, technocracy. Some people call this Marxist, monopoly, capitalist, transhumanist. It seems to be like this beast that's got flavors of, of each. How would you kind of qualify it?
1: Yes, in a sense, um, perhaps trying to put the definitive single label on it is self-defeating because precisely because it can morph and change shape to suit whatever the ideology of the moment is. I always point out that hundreds or thousands of years ago, people believed that their rulers were either literally gods or appointed by God to rule over them. That doesn't fly in the modern enlightened scientific era, so they needed to come up with a new story. Okay, it's uh, it's genes. Actually, when eugenics started, they didn't even know about genetics per se. Mendel was still doing his pea experiments and stuff, so they didn't really have any actual scientific basis for it. They just called it germplasm and said, "Well, you know, our germplasm, our goo, is better than your goo," and uh, you know, this is the scientific way of doing this. So they will morph and change the narrative to suit whatever time frame they happen to be in. And I think the, the one for the coming decades is going to be technocracy. It's going to be, don't worry, guys, the scientists trust the science. They know what's best. These people in the white lab coats know everything. Where do the people in the white lab coats get their funding and resources? And uh, n- no, never, ever think about that question. No, it's just they're floating on clouds and they will tell you what to do. And I think that's going to be the fig leaf of justification for this in the coming years. So I think for example, Patrick Wood has has it nailed. I think this is technocracy is the governance paradigm they're going to go with for the coming decades, and that's going to dictate the way that this unfolds. And uh, it's it's a nightmare unless we are aware of this and consciously working towards, um, and I wouldn't even say fighting against the implementation of the system so much as building up the actual alternative to this system, because it, their entire system is going to be predicated on being able to control and monitor and 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 disallow any interaction or any transaction with any person at in real time through their technological control. We have to build up the alternative infrastructure for an alternative economy now. We should have been doing it 20, 50, 100 years ago, but hey, might as well start today. And uh, if we don't have that in place by the time this cbdc and all of these things are in place it, it will be game over for free humanity
0: yeah i talked to patrick about a, a month ago and uh, it's on on this podcast we often talk about parallel structures parallel uh, parallel uh economies um to talk about a bit about mr global then you know there's a lot of smart people that i interview and as you said earlier when you listen to my podcast people have to get it through their head that I don't necessarily agree with my guests, but I, I'm, you got to hear different points of views. And uh, a commenter, a uh, listener was telling me like, um, everyone's got a little piece of the puzzle that maybe you didn't think about, uh, before. And so I've got guests like recently I had on Ron Unz, who thinks that COVID was a, uh, US bioweapon launched against China. Right before that, I spoke to Jeff Nyquist, who thinks it's a Chinese Russian bioweapon launched against, um, the U.S. Uh, and the West. And then I, before that, I had the Dutch academic, Keys van der Peel, who wrote the fantastic book, States of Emergency. And I think I agree with him where I think we're seeing, and I've other people that I've talked to, like Michael Recknewald as well, that point out the same, that we're seeing factions of ruling elites or ruling elites in all nations. They have some sort of a global network where they're working together because how else can you explain all nations from Mexico to Kazakhstan, where I used to live, to everywhere applying the same measures. And so, I mean, what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, what do you think is is going on? Is is there this one global power power structure that's infiltrated all all nations? Yes, uh, essentially, yes,
1: to a certain extent. So let me clarify that. But let me say I have listened to all three of those conversations. And although I disagree to some extent with all of them i certainly agree the most with uh van vander vander peel
0: was that his name yeah yeah, yeah. uh
1: yeah uh, he he it, th- he was more in line with the way i'm thinking about this um although i tend to disagree with his economic framing and what have you but but uh th- yes clearly this is More than a nation state 2D chess game that's being played right now. And so for people who are interested in this, I have talked at length a number of times about the concept of 3D chess geopolitically. I'm sure this is not a new concept to people by this point in 2022. But essentially, no, I do not think that the nation states warring against each other is... The entirety of the game, so to speak. I think it is part of the game, but I think there are forces and bodies that clearly and demonstrably over the past couple of years are enacting an agenda across nation-state borders. And a clear example of this, whether you think Russia are the good guys in some fight against the evil NATO, or whether you think that they're the bad guys that we should be trying to contain... in in any sense, just look at their COVID policies and the vaccine passports and the vaccines rolling out and all of this. It's Wow, it's almost identical to what's happening in the West. Wow, I thought they these were arch rivals. What's going on here? And then you start to look at the actual specific people, like uh, the CEO of Spurbank, uh, Gref, I forget his name, yeah. um, on, people like Gref. this that are clearly connected into the World Economic Forum explicitly and organizations like this. And I always try to stress, I don't think the World Economic Forum is running the, the world, But I think it's a good example that you can put your finger on. Oh, here's an organization with all these spokes that tend to go out into all of these different places that connect all of these players and all of these different supposedly warring countries. What's going on here? And um, I've talked about this many, many times. I will point once again, and I will always make the caveat that I'm not promoting this person, but I think it's a good one to use it to people who are uh, to point out to people who are skeptical that in 2008... Uh, uh, um, the mini Kissinger um, uh, what's his name uh, he was the head of Kissinger and Associates for some time he ran foreignpolicy.com he's a beltway insider in Washington Is surplus. there
0: uh, R- Rothkopf or something
1: David Rothkopf right yeah. right right uh, yeah. yeah Um he wrote the superclass which was a book talking explicitly about this the fact that there are actors who are not necessarily politicians. They are not in national governments. Who are, there's about 6,000 of them who are a super class who are able to enact agendas across national borders. And of course, every time he was giving Rothkopf, every time he was giving a, a speech about this or an interview in that time period when the book came out, he was like, oh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. This isn't a conspiracy theory. I'm not, don't tell me. But everything he's saying is exactly what the crazy conspiracy theorists are alleging. That yes, there is a super class that is an oligarchical elite that is able to enact an international agenda through various bodies and uh, things like the World Economic Forum or like the Bilderberg Group or these other places of power and influence where clearly there is an international agenda being set and implemented. Again, as we have seen over the past couple of years. So yes, clearly there is some much, much bigger thing happening right now than
0: merely a nation state 2D chess war. I'm going to show my Putin coffee cup. I'm not a Putin fanboy. I just, you know, I have it for fun. I picked it up when I was in St. Petersburg a few years ago. But um, I I think people have to think, imagine how you, whatever citizen you are of, of whatever country, how you feel with your own government right you, you as you said you, you left statism and you became a, a, a sort of an anarchist and i think a lot of us understand that our governments are evil you read uh, rj rummel who wrote about, who i think came up with the term democide right death by government in the 20th century government <laughs> killed the most people was the cause of, of most deaths now imagine if you're a russian living in russia I mean, you're going to feel the same way as an American feels against its corrupt American government as a Russian against its own Russian government. There's no reason for us to think the Russians are any better or the Chinese or Whatever other country, and in fact, I've uh, Riley Wagaman, who I've interviewed, who's former mm-hmm. RT, yeah. who 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 um, is in Russia. He he lays out yeah. his sub stack is amazing. He's showing you how Russia is yeah. going full great reset, and and actually, he's going to be contributing original material articles for geopolitics and empire, so people can awesome. Watch it. Yeah, good. people. Yeah, can he's take- doing
1: good work. Uh, let me put in a plug for him. I, I, I agree. I think he. Yeah, it's incredibly important to see it from that perspective because it can be easy for for someone. In America or somewhere else to look at, oh well, you know, Putin's such a great leader and such the. It's easy to say that when you're not actually in Russia, beholden to the Russian system. Oh, the Russian vaccine passports are just so much better than the American version. Like what? What? What's going on? No, clearly, yeah, it's important to keep that perspective in mind that we should not be idealizing. Or then uh, the other flip side of that, of course, is that it's not like I'm saying, oh, you know, we should go in and invade Russia to free them from Putin. That's again, that's the wrong, the wrong way of thinking about it.
0: So I'm trying to bring up, you know, these are some of the, the big questions for, for me as as we've been discussing and war also, which, which you mentioned that you think coming, you know, uh, where are we now? 2022, that, you know, towards 2030, you see war i see the same and a number of my guests have said the same i've talked to the australian special forces uh, australia one politician ricardo Bossi, who thinks you know i'm 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 a historian i studied history it's like the default in history is war peace is the anomaly so it's like we're going to have war again the question is kind of like what's it going to kind of look like between who where uh, the consequences and uh, many other guests have also uh, said the same that they see war from between 2025 closer to 2030 um but it's just that kind of interesting dynamic as you laid out we've got these these like snakes that have infiltrated as you laid out our national governments so they're working for this global kind of power but yet at the same time we've got this overt kind of rivalry you know we're seeing now between US Russia China and other states and that will eventually go to war so how do you explain the logic Uh, behind that. I guess what one past guest also discussed that war allows them to transform the entirety of society as well. So they can use that very much to their advantage. So what are your thoughts about war in the future? All right. So I sometimes tend to just say that I'm
1: not a cartoon conspiracy theorist, where I think there's one group that controls everything and they all meet in a smoky room. But let's, let's lay that out in detail. It's not like there is a thing called the elite and you get your membership card to the elite. And along with that, you you get the plan. And here is the plan. And here's what's going to happen. And here's what you have to do with this. Does anyone think that's how it works? I certainly don't. So there are different players involved in this game who are at different layers of eliteness. And in if sort of whether they're on the inner side of the inner circle or the outer side of the inner circle or the outer side of the outer circle and different levels of understanding who are have their own motivations, individual psychology, let alone sort of, you know, where they're what they believe that they're doing and what part they're playing. So I don't think there is a singular plan that everyone is working towards. So there is a 2D chess game. That is part of what is happening right now. And there are nation states that th- do have militaries. And I have no doubt that a lot of people in the militaries of their respective nation states are on board with the idea of the 2D chess war. And they really do see it in that those terms. And they really are working towards containing, if not eradicating, the enemy in the simplistic terms, etc. There are certain people above them who may be giving... Orders or uh, 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 funding certain things into existence or what have you that are at a different level of the game who might understand things a bit differently and might have different allegiances they might have some allegiance to their nation state of origin but they might have allegiance to some sort of broad category of economic interest or their uh, their fellows in various organizations etc so again a lot of people have different understandings and levels that they're playing at so one way that hot war can can actually eventuate is the hothead on the wrong day, firing the, pulling the trigger. Once there is enough pieces in place on the chessboard, it just takes one wrong move at one wrong time to, to put the clockwork machinery into motion. And that's one way of looking at world war one. Yes. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand started world war one. Why? Like what what How did that motivate all these different people? Well, because the clockwork machinery for all of this war was already in place. all it needed was a trigger event. Did it matter what the particular trigger event is? Well, not necessarily. no, it was a trigger event, and it set everything into motion. Everything had already been set up in the same way, again, like I've been trying to stress with the biosecurity state, all of the pieces were in place. Everything was there. All it needed was a trigger event. Does it really matter what particular trigger event it is? No, it's already set up. So, I think all of the pieces are being put into place right now for a hot war scenario. So will it matter necessarily what the particular trigger event is? Well, I mean, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But does it matter in terms of whether or not war originates? No, not necessarily. Um, my my bigger sort of perspective on this, because people say, well, OK, if they both sides are controlled by the same people. And again, I think that might be a bit too simplistic way of putting it. But why would they then have, why would they need war at all if they control everything? Well, again, I don't think they control everything. And besides, the point of war is, has always been to get um, land resources. I mean, these are the geopolitical imperatives throughout history, right? But at this stage, the war is not against Russians or Chinese or Iranians or what have you. It is against the people, the free people of the world. That is what we're talking about. In this ideology that we're talking about, the ideological battle of eugenics or transhumanism or whatever, Whatever way it's being framed in our current um, time frame, the the real war is against the people. It's governing structures that that want to consolidate power over more and more people. How can they best do that? War might be a way to do that to consolidate control, because one of the automatic effects of any wartime is everyone rallies around the flag and supports. Okay, we'll do what you say. Obedience becomes immediate and almost universal, which is certainly helpful, especially during times of incredible geopolitical, economic, societal chaos, uncertainty, a lot of things can happen. Clearly, there are some real revolutionary forces that are happening right now. And it's starting to manifest as, for example, the freedom convoy in Canada, whatever you make of that, that is an expression of people calling out, no, this has to change. Something is really wrong here. And what's a good way to get people in line? Uh-oh, look at what Russia is doing. Okay, now everybody, we have to go. So that's one way of framing this. But that's why I I actually did a a piece on how will World War Three be fought uh, a year or two ago, in which I answered that question. I was talking about some of the technology for warfare that has really changed what warfare will look like in the future. In the same way World War One looked nothing like war of the 19th century, World War II looked nothing like World War One. World War III will not look anything like World War II. Um, but the actual answer is that World War III is already happening. It is a war of the governments of the world against their own populations. And in that war, uh, that's the that's the real, the game for all the marbles. So uh, one way of envisioning 2D chess taking place in this 3D chess universe, 3, 2D chess war, is uh, 1984. You have Oceania, you have uh, uh, Eurasia, you have East Asia, and they're always at war, or at least we're told we're at war with uh, Eurasia. No, East Asia. Oh, I got to check the newspaper. Oh, it says Eurasia. Okay, I guess we're at war with them today and there's there's bombs dropping down. And we're being told it's, well, I guess it's East, East Eura, uh, Eurasia. We're at war with Eurasia now. Okay, it must be them, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, we're at war, so we have to just do what the government tells us. That's one way of thinking about this. Obviously, I don't mean it in that literal sense. Uh, there will be real bombs dropping in the event of real hot war, and they will really kill people. But uh, the, the idea that this is uh, being waged simply at that 2D level, and that it's about a nation state versus a nation state rather than control of the general population. I think we have to get out of that mindset of, of thinking of it at that nation state level.
0: And speaking of of mindset, I kind of wanted to bring this up. Someone in my telegram, you know, geopolitics and empire telegram channel chat was saying, oh, the trucker can Canada trucker convoy is a psyop up by the elites to really take down the, the supply chain. And I just kind of wanted to address this issue where, you know, there's a, a lot of people on I'm sure your listeners, my listeners and and other folks, they have very partisan views. And, you know, I've got my own views, but I'm not banging it over the head of anyone. And as you said, you listened to my last three episodes and and obviously you don't disagree with these people, but you kind of just sit there and just, you know, you know, listen, and I don't think there's a lot of folks that are going about things in a way that I think is not very healthy. You know, they'll comment, oh, no, you know, there's no virus. Stop talking about germ theory. or Others are going to say, no, it's gain of function or, or, you know, Kazakhstan, for example, that say, no, it's a color revolution. And uh, you, you saw my take where I gave a very nuanced view. And today it was reported in Kazakhstan that there were Kazakh citizens trying to tell Kazakh authorities that, you know, they're seeing terrorists and armed groups like months before, what was happening? That lends credence to the idea that you know maybe it was a false flag or or an internal coup. And so, what would you say? I think you know it's like, bro, chill. You know, we have to be, be a bit more respectful and nuanced. And there's a lot of people that are just angry, um, yeah. hateful, yeah. and you know. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this needing to have? I know
1: comments? what you're saying. There's a couple of different things. I'd like to say about that one is never ever ever take at face value interactions that you have online with avatars that you don't see and don't know because we know 100% we know that there are armies of social media bots. That are being run by militaries and intelligence agencies around the world, documented on the record. I did a podcast on that a couple of years ago, uh, the weaponization of social media. People can check into for the documented, we know country after country, Canada, America, Israel, all of them have botnets that they employ. So don't ever take interactions online as authentic expressions of real human beings. We don't know that necessarily. But secondarily, there are people, I think, who are genuinely acting and, and interacting the way that you say. And here's the way I would. I would frame this. So think about, um, all right. So I, I play a bit of guitar and, um, imagine you're, you're learning guitar and you you know, three or four chords and someone teaches you a new chord. Oh, here's a B7. Woo, B7. Awesome. So what do you do as the sort of You know, you're trying to figure out what, how to play and what to do. And so now you've got this new chord. So now you tried to put B7 in every song, (laughs) everything you play. Hey, I'm going to use this B7 chord. Wow, look at this chord, right? I mean, it's, I understand. And it's a natural part of growing. So unfortunately, as we know, not everyone is intellectually, um, Firing on all cylinders, and not uh, and not everyone's a deep researcher, or deep thinker, or what have you. And a lot of people who are just sort of the mainstream masses who would just consume CNN twenty years ago now realize, at the very least, okay, CNN's wrong, and so they start to learn about false flag operations and psyops and these kinds of things. And so it's like teaching someone the B seven chord, okay, B seven. So now they're going to play that that chord every single time. It's a psyop. It's a psyop. It's a false flag. It's because a... it's the one thing that they know how to do. And, you know, I let me, so let's particularize this to the Freedom Convoy thing. Um, if people go again and read that editorial I talk about, um, do not uh, go back to sleep, this is not the end. I, of course, I acknowledge, absolutely, this can go uh, wrong in a lot of different ways, but it always can. You can't think of any freedom movement or protest or anything that could not be co-opted, could not be corrupted, could not be used for an ulterior agenda. So let's think. Truckers. And now suddenly truckers have become synonymous with this freedom movement. And it's all the truckers. And now we're starting to see people in America and Australia and other places talking about truckers. And we'll have a trucker freedom convoy. It's all about trucker, 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 which is a, a weird way of particularizing this. No, it's actually about the broader question of mandates and freedom and what have you why is it being particularized to truckers well one way that could play out what do we know is already has already been tested and is already being implemented in various ways uh, autonomous self-driving trucks specifically in fact the first um the first cross country american autonomous vehicle that i ever heard about actually being tested and used was a truck for specifically for trucking i mean that that's so long-term, if we're going to demonize a certain class of people in order to facilitate the removal of their industry, essentially, wouldn't that be a convenient tool? Sure. That could, that's one way that could play out, at least in the long-term. Or at the very least, I mean, if we all associate it with, with the truckers and what the truckers are doing, then uh, it can become uh, only about that particular that, that class or that person or that, that thing. And so that could be spun in... Various ways by the people who are controlling the narrative, the mass media, right? So, yes, could it be a psyop, a false flag? uh, We're going to implant some protesters with Nazi flags and Confederate flags and you know, as people in Canada, of course, they're always marching with Confederate flags, right? That's so, so, so natural. Of course, they'll plant provocateurs and all sorts of things, as we know they have done. 2007 SPP protests in Montebello, Quebec. They 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 were caught. The Quebec Provincial Police, they facilitated Quebec, put in agent provocateurs to go in there threatening the police line with rocks in their hands in order to promote a police response. They got called out, but It happens. Absolutely. And it can happen and presumably will happen in any movement of any size and importance. So what's the point of this? There are clearly, genuinely, Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Canada energized and talking about the freedom mandates. Not every one of them is an agent provocateur. I'm sure there are many people, Canadians in the crowd listening to this, who know genuine people or they themselves genuinely support what what is happening here and the idea and freedom, mandate freedom. Yay, I'm behind this idea. So it's up to us to put that message out there and to expose the false flags and psyops and the way that they will try to spin it into some other narrative. It is not up to us to sit there and wait for the CBC and the CTV and other mainstream outlets to please report this in the way we want you to report it. That's not their job. (laughs) At the end of the day, you're, you're not their boss. So we have to be that. And for this brief sliver of time, think of the vast, the vast expanse of human history for the last 20 or so years, it has been genuinely feasible for some no-name in Japan sitting in his living room to reach tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, occasionally millions of people with a message so that we can put our own spin on things and say, no, no, it isn't that. It's this. We can actually direct this narrative. It is, in some ways, the most exciting time in all of human history. And we are not spectators to what's happening. And we're not on the sidelines analyzing and just, oh, B7, 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 false flag, PSYOP, PSYOP, false flag. No, we are actually people who can make a difference to this world-changing historical narrative that is playing out right now. And we can tell that story for ourselves. We don't have to wait for them to do it. It's an exciting time to be alive. It's an incredibly dangerous time. There's all sorts of things that can happen, but at any rate, we have a part to play in this
0: yeah i would agree it's it's exciting and uh yeah it's it's what, what we're doing it's it's fun and it's it's I've, as i've mentioned before, i feel like it's the nineteen thirties again it's incredibly dangerous uh as well and you started a great solutions watch uh series, and I often end my interviews by asking my guests you know so what do we do now and you know the most frequent answer is I get from many of my guests are you know decentralized move from urban to rural grow food have your own water form a community very important invest in physical assets become less dependent and more um, independent and I'm um, I'm also worried about that the the cyber pandemic that's that's in the pipe and and censorship I didn't have time to ask you about that but it seems like uh, we're going to have to be dealing with. They're, they're discussing taking down podcasts now, and even deplatforming websites. Like these are our last lines of defense. I think our yeah. podcasts and, and websites. That's why I moved to, to Epic Hosting. But I think part of this Joe Rogan scandal now is th- th- they've been talking for uh, signaling for the last few years the establishment that they want to they they can't control podcasts. So in general, you know, what are some of your uh, you know what do we do going forward? Yeah, thank you for picking up on that, actually, because that's actually
1: I I talked about the midterm agenda of CBDCs and the long term agenda of some sort of hot war. I think the short term is actually cyber, cyber related cyber pandemic or cyber false flag or something along those lines to lead us towards greater control of the Internet. Um, So yes, the question, as always, okay, great. Lots of problems. We know about the problems, James. What do you do about them? So that is why I did start the Solutions Watch series where every week, week in and week out, I'm looking at specific things that people can do or apply in their lives to make their lives better. I do not believe there's a silver bullet I think there are thousands of bullets and uh, not every bullet works for every person because they have different guns to extend that analogy way too far. But (laughs) at any rate, use whatever you can to improve your life in whatever ways you can. And hopefully people who are consciously setting their intent on Getting out of the systems and strictures of control can find ways to do so, and so I look at various ways. So, for example, on the cyber pandemic and the threats to the the internet as we've known it, and the very real threat to podcasting in the future, I've seen that absolutely for the past couple of years. Oh no, podcasts! People can say whatever they want. Oh, please, someone censor. Um, well, I mean, there's there's different ways that that can happen, and one of them is that the easiest censorship point will be the. Spotify's, the Apple podcast, the Google podcast. Of course, all the centralized hubs where people go to get podcasts will be censored first of all. But that isn't actually really at base how podcasting even works. At base, podcasting is based on RSS, Real Simple Syndication, which you do not need to go through the Apple Store or Spotify or whatever to get a podcast. You can go directly to a, a website or as long as you have that RSS feed, you can plug that into any number of different applications and you will be able to get that podcast delivered to you. So it that's a one like basic fallback step that we can take. And it's not the solution, but it's a, a step away from that centralization of control. Learn about RSS and what it is and how it works. And suddenly, if they even if they take the Corbett report or geopolitics and empire off of Apple podcasts or whatever, you'll still be able to get the podcast. Wouldn't that be nice? So steps like that. And then you, you build up from there. Okay, well, they're going to come after domains. So is there a way to, because the domain name system is like the telephone ad- book for the internet. If they take away the telephone book, I won't be able to call CorbettReport.com, right? Well, okay. So what can we do about that? There are decentralized domain ideas, the dot .crypto addresses and others that are do not rely on the DNS system and thus cannot be just scrubbed at the whim of a, a, a nation state. Um, things like that. But then but then they're going to come for the infrastructure of the World Wide Web itself. They're going to make you scan to get on the web. And, and so, OK, so can we bypass the ISPs? Can we go? Do we need the World Wide Web? What about IPFS or some of these other ways of connecting peer to peer like the Internet is supposed to be used? But we've all just been conditioned into thinking Facebook and TikTok are is the Internet, right? No, no, that's, that is not the Internet. So we have to start learning about that. Um, If you're talking about vaccine mandates, I've I've done an entire post about different ways to protest or fight against or work around vaccine mandates. Uh, If you're talking about the the CBDC agenda and digital currency and all of this, I've talked about Cash Fridays or Black Market Fridays, different ways to start increasing your, decreasing your reliance on digital forms of exchange and increasing your reliance on things like cash, which still exists for the time being and we can still use while we still have it, et cetera, et cetera. For everything that we have talked about, about today there are things that are being done there are people that are working on ideas there are things that you can start implementing in your life today the only question is are you interested in that and if you are then go out there and start finding and let me know about it too because i'm always looking for ideas for solutions to watch
0: yeah i know you also did a episode on rss which i remember uh looking at all right um apart from CorbettReport.com, is there any other website or project you're working on that we should know about
1: I think that's the place to go. Um, And from there, you can find all of my minds and Odyssey and all my channels and everything. But just go to CorbettReport.com. For the time being, that is the place to go. But also on the sidebar at the very bottom, there's a Corbett Report on IPFS where you can click and you can get the IPFS backup of the Corbett Report site. All of the audio and video is backed up. Uh, I believe it hasn't backed up since last April because my sitemap broke and I haven't had time to fix it. I'm going to do that. And when it does, it'll update again. Um, At any rate, if the Corbett Report suddenly disappeared overnight, well, at least all of the audio and video is backed up on IPFS.
0: All right, everyone, again, bookmark CorbettReport.com. Sign up for the free newsletter. I get it. Uh, And also consider supporting James for as low as even $1 a month for us podcasters and content creators. Every single digital peso counts. Uh, Thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire, Senor Corbett. Thank you for having me on and uh, good luck
1: for uh, the podcast. I'm glad to see you growing and expanding what you do. I appreciate it.
0: I hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, And I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines, the newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem. SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe,